Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-hosts. Warning you too. Uberthug. Clearly, Firaxis just has to hire enough people to like drop in, drop out for everybody who's playing single player. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're really playing multiplayer, and there's Firaxis hired employee on the other side of the uh, green. Oh, God. Oh, dear. <laughs> Here's our hundreds of thousands of people's staff. Yeah. And Civ 7 now costs like $8,000 retail. I think we need a segue to Barbarians. Yeah, speaking of people, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Bill thinks it's a question mark. Well, I mean, the, the third context fits that pretty well, though. Is your segue implying that Phyrexis employees are barbarians? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, strictly well, speaking, that's not the segue I was going for. But hey, I mean, if you're going to call them out like that. <laughs> wow. Well, 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 Hello, and welcome to Polycast episode 305. I'm your guest co-host, Uberfog, and I'm joined by another guest co-host, Warning You 2 Hello, folks. I'm not and, wearing pants. And regular co-hosts, the me and team. Bringing quality products to your cities, whether you like it or not. Makalua. Why am I not surprised that Steve has joined the No Pants crew like Phil? <laughs> and Mega Bears fan. Nature has attacked my allergies for 99 damage. Mm, bad times but you could also join the no pants crew i often say that i prefer to wear pants as infrequently as possible oh yeah i'm in that crew too but the allergy thing seemed like the more important topic at the moment well yeah i mean that's a little bit more pressing in the literal sense i remember when i was uh, in grade five i had a teacher his name was mr haley who came up with an idea for civilization long before what we have today this was probably 1970 he had us come in and he had this map. He had made it himself, this map on the wall. And we were each representing ourselves. And we had to make a settlement and expand, just like civilization is. And during the course of this, he taught us all about how fire was invented and how this happened and the different civilizations that formed. And it was a, a learning experience for many months where he taught us about Mesopotamia. And uh, I can't, I'm not even saying that right, but the, the Egyptians and the Romans and, and put it all out there. And then unfortunately, I was disappointed because I ended up getting the flu or pneumonia or something, and I missed the end of the lesson. But I still remember today that using a game a role play even what we did during that and how much we learned as opposed to the multiple choice question and answers that a lot of other teachers resorted to. Yeah, because when you get engaged by not just history, but any subject, when the teacher engages you with it and gets you to enjoy learning it, you're going to retain that a hell of a lot longer oh. than just sitting here with a list of dates and everything else. All right, now time to teach math and physics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. What has Siv taught us about math? <laughs> Should coast tiles be modded? There's even a little pole. Oh, this is why. This is why Dan picked this thread. There's a pole at the top of the thread. Oh, boy. Ah. Uh.
Well, it's uh, currently it's sitting with 48% saying coastals are fine the way they are. 26 saying they suck, but they wouldn't change. And then only 25% wanting to change it. I don't know if that's specific to somebody's proposal in there, but uh, who started this thread? Marigoldran. It's actually, oh, doing their own modding things. The reason they did it is because an unmodded coast tile is even worse than the desert tile. Even as Indonesia coast tiles are still pretty bad since you can't chop them or build districts on them. It just happened to be less bad, air quotes, than anyone else. Uh, he thinks they're total waste. I, well, I don't know if they're total waste, but I wouldn't mind a little more yield in the coast tiles. I just want to make sure that I'm remembering correctly. Desert tiles produce zero yield throughout the entire game, right? Yeah. Um, unless you throw saying, a district was, on them. So I have to say that coast tiles being worse than desert is kind of subjective because... Mathematically wrong. <laughs> Well, you get at least one food and one gold out of a coast tile currently. Right. It really depends because you get some adjacency and you have some wonder eligibility for possessing a desert. But you also do get non-zero yield from coasts that you can boost. A couple posts down, Victoria gives a list of ways you can improve coast tiles. And while it's, while it's pretty difficult to make them legitimately useful tiles to work, you can, in principle, make them at least tolerable. So if you make them too much stronger, then they can become very dominant, I would imagine. Yeah, I would be mostly in favor of not necessarily changing the base yield of coast and ocean tiles, but more like just introducing and adding in more water-based resources and features for you to actually work so that there's productive tiles on the coast. I think the way the coastal tiles are made today are fine. To have the ability to be able to fish every tile all the time, I think will unbalance yeah, I think they're in a much better position than they used to be. Now we have things like reefs adding a little bit of production, and sea resources seem to be a lot more common than they were back at launch. And between like harbour districts and rain and the fisheries, I think they're never going to be your most productive cities, but you can certainly make a decent job of having some production and commerce in a coastal city now, I think. Now, you mentioned production, and that's one thing I wouldn't mind seeing returning. We haven't really had coastal cities be productive, quote unquote, so to speak, regardless of what you choose since so far. And they worked in so far because of the whip with the slavery civic. I don't think we need the slavery civic back in the game for a few reasons, but uh, having some way that at least if you have the right resources on the coast or something to make them a bit more productive. I don't know if the game needs it, but it'd be interesting. Yeah, I, I think my biggest issue with the vanilla Civ Six came out, I did not like coastal cities at all because of the lack of productivity. And I, I always felt that what they should have done was just put more production in the harbor and the harbor buildings, like maybe even giving the adjacency bonus gold and production. Oh, yeah. Or something like that. You know, without having any infrastructure, I don't think coast should generate any production. But I think harbors are both commercial structures and industrial structures. So either it should provide both benefits or maybe there should be some kind of like specialization path for harbors where you choose which direction you want to go with it. Kind of like how the encampments have the barracks or the stable. Mm. Maybe the uh, harbor commercial 
specialization path or maybe like a warehouse or something like that that gives you production or something like that and takes you down a production specialization path. So you can choose on a city-by-city basis whether you want this to be a commercial harbor or an industrial harbor. I like that. Or, you know, heck, maybe they're just two separate buildings and you can do both in the same city. Would you add a military type of thing for that if you wanted to have one particular harbor be like your warship harbor or something? Maybe, because usually when I do a Navy, I usually mostly produce it out of one city. Maybe I buy some in other cities. I mean, I would kind of feel like if you're going to go down an industrial specialization for the harbor, then that should probably basically go into the military because that's probably the reason you want production is so that you can build navies. Because there's only like, what, three wonders in the entire game, four wonders that are coastal. So it's not like you're going to build a crap ton of wonders or something like that that you're going to need all that production for. Yeah. Even if you had something small to add to the harbor, like a warship dry dock or something like that to slightly specialize it as yeah i kind of feel like that's one of the big missed opportunities with the districts so far in the game is that they don't have any ways for you to specialize the individual districts like they have the barracks and the stable for the encampment i think they should have done more of that sort of thing for all the districts i think that would have been cool give you more choices and options for how your city is going to grow and develop and i think the harbors are a really good example of how that could be done yeah, I've seen sorry, the same thing for the aerodrome as well, because is it a tourism booster or is it an airplane production booster? That would be a good fork for the aerodrome district, I think, to choose what you want it to do. But other than that, I would say that just adding that water park district has, I think, boosted the appeal of coastal cities a lot because now there actually is some infrastructure that you can build on the water. And one of the big problems in vanilla was there was the harbor and that was it. So building on the coast just meant that you had that many fewer land tiles on which to build districts. Now that there's at least one more district that you can build on the water, that I think makes a big difference. Sure. You really get to work all your tiles anyway, though, to be fair. It's quite difficult uh, for most of the game where it's relevant to grow your city sufficiently where you even work half of them. True. It was just that in most cases, the land tiles were the ones that you didn't want to build districts on because those were the ones that actually had decent yields on them. That's true, yes. Whereas it'd be really nice if I could build more of these districts on the water that I don't want to work because they generate crappy yield. (laughs) That's true. But I would be more in favor of the water tiles providing more food rather than production and just being something that helps your city grow really large and be a commercial gold-generating powerhouse. All right, then. Speaking of useful tiles, or perhaps not so much, our next topic is the thread called Fort Should Give Loyalty by uh, Craig Sutter. Title says, most useless improvement in the game should provide a loyalty buff of plus one. So I would otherwise limit their placement by terrain and non-adjacency restrictions, and maybe pillaging them could cause a loyalty hit. Oh boy, forts. That's right, I forgot they were in the game. What's a fort? <laughs> I think I've built a couple of them when I was Rome, and that was that's it. <laughs> Just to see how they worked. I was not particularly impressed, to say the least. I think there's a lot of things that we can do with forts beyond just loyalty. Like, I could maybe see, like, what's the social policy that gives you, like, plus one amenity for garrisoned units and cities? Yeah, Limitana, I think, something like that. I could say that maybe being extended to at least one fort per city each or something like that. So if you build a fort near a city and you garrison a unit in it, maybe that should apply an extra amenity to the city as well. I could see something like that maybe working because it's like, you know, an extra garrison, extra city defense. The investment is so much, though, because you have to make the units to build the fort and make the units to garrison the fort, which are then not using the units for other uses, like taking cities or killing units that are being annoying elsewhere. That's true. But if it's a border city and you kind of want those forts for defense anyway, they might as well give you some peacetime benefit as well. I guess. 
I, I can't imagine what I would scrap just to get that bonus like right. at any point in the game. And also, I would say they should probably provide tourism or something like that later in the game because, you know, eventually old forts become, you yeah, know, yeah. tourist attractions. I mean, I guess it's kind of weird in Civ because it still technically functions as a fort. It's not like you ever decommission it. So that'd be kind of weird, but I could see something like that maybe working. Or occupying unit receives plus four defense strength and automatically gains two turns of fortification. Okay. That's it. That's why nobody builds them. (laughs) (laughs) I like the idea of adding a loyalty kind of historically makes sense. If you build a fort, more people would be loyal to the occupying people because it's an imposing structure. But uh, it's too difficult to build them. I mean, you have to have a military engineer, which doesn't come along until siege tactics. Yeah, and I hardly even build those either. No, I don't either. It's very rare. I I can't remember ever having the need for one. I don't know if anybody else does, but... I think when I get to having planes and I want to have airstrips, I'll build like a couple military engineers and send them along just in case I need to build an airbase for my planes to camp in. But other than that, yeah, I don't think I've ever used one to build a fort. Like I said, I've used the Roman Legion to build the Roman fort a couple of times just to see how it worked, but that was it. Four defense strength isn't bad. It's it's okay. The problem is that the military engineer, yeah. And that doesn't even scale up with eras, does it? So, like, in the modern era, is, is four strength even all that good anymore? It no. still is, because it's basically the better part of a great general bonus. The way strength scaling in Civ Six works, four strength is always going to be useful. And a ten strength advantage is always going to be uh, in the two-shot territory. It's pretty nice. It'll make a unit that's already uh, decent defensively pretty difficult to dislodge. Like you got a melee unit there that has plus 10 against range attacks and then plus four from that. Uh, like a great general. Yeah, that could be significantly challenging to kick something like that off the tile. But then again, you don't really have to because if it's a melee unit in that tile, then you just walk around it. Well, it zocks you, though. <laughs> that could be a problem. Yeah, if you're getting bombardment from other places. Yeah, or it basically creates like a mountain if you don't kill that unit. Right. So if you're just trying to filter units through, yeah, you're going to get defeat in detail. Like, you'll have to deal with the unit if it's a choke. So I, I can see the purpose. It's just so rare. It's so rare that it's useful. But uh, the loyalty is probably not enough to tip building it more often, especially at plus one. Yeah, I don't think the loyalty by itself would be enough. I would need something else, like I said, for it to generate culture or tourism or... I don't know, give ranged units plus one range when they're garrison in the fort, something like that. I, I think that's what I would need in order for it to be worth building. And even then, it would still be situational. If you can't build it in neutral territory and you don't have any border tensions along your border, then there's still no reason to ever need to build it. Maybe that's all it needs. Just let it be built in neutral territory. I think one of the posts in here proposed that it should not only be able to be built in neutral territory, but that it should be able to claim tiles if built adjacent to your territory. And I think that's kind of a cool, interesting proposal. I like the idea of, in general, of being able to go out and claim territory before you actually have to settle a city there and then actually having to fight over territory. But I think that sort of thing only really makes sense if the game has mechanics in place for land tiles to be contested between multiple nations and for you to actually be able to trade individual tiles via diplomacy. So if you fight a war over, I want that tile that has that strategic resource on it that you built a fort on, as part of the peace terms... I can make you give me that tile rather than having to capture a city to take the tile. So without mechanics like that, I'm kind of eh on the idea of them taking territory, but I do like the idea in principle. 
Well, I think you could just make it where, like, if you put it on currently, nobody has the tile. Like, if you actually spend the resources to produce the fort there, then uh, if it's adjacent to one of your tiles, then you get it. And if not, then uh, it just stays neutral and whoever's in the fort gets the bonuses from the fort. Right. Or maybe even have something like, and I don't know, Mackie and Phil, you guys might uh, crucify me for saying this, but do you remember the way that colonies used to work in Civ 3? Maybe something like that. Oh, you mean for resources? Yeah, if you build it on a resource in your territory, it claims the resource for you. Maybe not necessarily (laughs) claims the tiles, you know, maybe not annex the tiles, but just gives you a copy of the resource, kind of like how colonies worked in Civ 3 and kind of similar to how Fatoria's worked in uh, for Portugal in Civ 5. I wouldn't mind it. So as long as you keep a unit stationed in there to claim it as your fort so someone else doesn't just walk yeah, and say, oh, my fort, exactly. my resource. Yeah, my fort. Uh, yeah, that would be very interesting if people needed to contest a given resource or yeah, contest the amenities and such. Man, that'd be so troll. <laughs> or when you ha- you're a little bit too far spaced out because the place you could put a city is an absolute crap place, but you really need to get that one thing. Instead of having to build a city up in the Arctic because that's where the oil or the uranium or something was, you could put a colony up there. And then you'd have to defend it. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you don't, (laughs) it's there. Yeah. The cost of you being able to hold on to that is you have to have a unit station up there at all times. Right. And if it's a strategic resource that you actually, you know, need, like oil. Yoink. To make sure that it does stay defended. Otherwise, not only do you lose it, but your opponent might get it. Yeah. Yeah, I think forts have always been in a weird place in Civ. I remember in Civ 4, they added the ability to make them canals, right? Because people didn't used to build forts originally in Civ 4 or 5 either. So having an extra hurdle in Civ 6 by having this military engineer just killed them completely. Yeah, that was what I used them for in Civ 4. I didn't even think of them as forts. As far as I was concerned, it was a canal. I would imagine you could cluster the AI quite badly using forts in Civ 6. You just don't need to do it because the AI clusters itself anyway. <laughs> but yeah. Well, part of that is just the maps are so constrained. It's hard not to get more than just a few units into some kind of weird cluster mess just because there's so many obstacles and everything's so packed in tight. Yeah, that's why I'm a little bit leery of making forts too much stronger, though, because I don't want to see a meta where they're dominant. It would be very obnoxious to do anything for anybody. If you've got more than the plus four strength, like say they're plus eight or something ridiculous, I, you're, you're basically saying, OK, that unit that's in that fort's an error in front, whatever it currently is. <laughs> and that's uh, that's pretty obnoxious. It would be very, very difficult to get rid of that. Yes, so moving from one piece of infrastructure to another, this is something that not only isn't very good in Civ Six, but kind of some reason isn't even present at all, and that's railroads. All yeah, right. we, we have the road upgrades through the eras, but it never specifically says that it's a railroad, and we don't spam roads on every tile the way we used to in previous sieves, so it's been maybe slightly less of an issue that we don't have to designate this is the one straight line which i think is the fastest way to move from a to b kusperitas i hope i don't i have no idea how to pronounce that on a Syphonatics forum poses the question is there anything more historically important than railroads that is missing from this game um and i'd be hard pressed to think of something that railroads is a pretty conspicuous omission <laughs> Spear-based land armies, tra-la-la-la-la-la. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, that is in the game, so... <laughs> sort of. 
it's allegedly in the game, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> for something that was the primary method of combat for the majority of our history, <laughs> you don't see a lot of it in the game, that's for sure. Yeah, it's true. But yeah, the Industrial Revolution was a pretty big deal, and railroads are also a pretty big deal as part of that. Yeah, Boris Goodenough has a long post in there talking about the history of railroads and how much it changed things. Oh yeah, major game changer, for sure. Especially in the larger countries by land area, clearly altered their ability to use resources. Oh yeah, the United States and Canada and Russia. I mean, rail- yeah. like mm-hmm. railroads and the telegraph were like the definitive industrial technologies for those countries because they, yeah, like you said, completely changed the way that those countries did business. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal, and it was a pretty big deal in game in Sip Four when you could move ten tiles rather than one <laughs> by using railroads. <laughs> And they would have been a really big deal in Civ Five if you could have stacked units onto them instead of having to move them along the railroads one at a friggin' time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I guess is probably one of my biggest concerns with railroads in Civ Six. If they were to show up, I really hope they aren't just an upgrade to roads the way that they were in Civ Five. I'd like to see them be some kind of completely separate piece of infrastructure, like maybe something that's hub-based that works kind of like airlifting, where you put your units in or near a city and then you move them to another city that's connected to the rail network, you know, on the same landmass, obviously. And either that be like instantaneous or being some kind of like node based thing where each city that you pass through counts as a movement point or something like that. And maybe even giving you the ability where if you group a bunch of units next to the city, you can load them all into the train at once and then send them to another city and then unload them all at once. So you don't have to go through the micromanagement of moving the units one at a time along the path. But I don't know, that might be tricky to do. I don't know if that's something that's reasonable to ask for in Civ Six. It just might be awkward from a coding perspective, yeah. but it would be really nice to have a, a movement boosting option and tie it to railroads. Right. I mean, one of my consistent frustrations with fighting wars in both Civ Five and Civ Six is you win the war, you capture the other player's capital, you're supposed to be feeling, yay, I won a major victory, but instead all I feel is, ugh. Now I have to move all 20 of these freaking yeah. units halfway across the world. Oh, yeah. You have to move your army carpet back to the other side of the map for the next war. Yeah. It is awkward that you can nearly reproduce that army or at least produce a good chunk of that army in the time it would take to move it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, yeah, I, I don't like where the game is in that regard, for sure. Although Civ Six certainly made that a lot more of a chore by not giving us a build queue. Uh, yeah. Uh... Yeah, I'm really surprised that railroads are not in the game. I'm really surprised that Rise and Fall didn't add them. I would have to imagine that if there's going to be a second expansion, that it would represent railroads in some fashion. But Pretty please. <laughs> yeah, it might just be one of those things where it doesn't really fit into the Civ Six mechanics as they stand. I think they wanted to get away from micromanagement. So they don't want people to have to move them one at a time. I like the idea of having a transfer ability if you got a railroad. Right. You know, like you can transfer two cities away or something like that. Something would be reasonable. That sounds like a wonderful idea. Yeah. Yeah. Airlifting should almost be like the upgrade to railroads, where both of those are ways to move your units in bulk, but they should be much more limited in where you can move your units to. So basically, yeah, the railroad should act like a land-based airlift. And then when you get flight, then basically you're able to do this equivalent action, but over different continents. I think that would be a good way to make them work. And I'd also like if it consumed resources. I think railroad should require and potentially, well, I guess you can't really consume coal in Civ 6 because you don't have the strategic supply like in Civ 5. 
I can make it one again. Like, I had actually thought of making a mod for Civ Five where the railroads did work separately from the regular roads, and you would have to load your units into a railroad on a train station building in the city and then actually spend a coal to move that unit to any other city connected to that rail network. I just never got around to actually implementing it. So, if, like, if you had five coal resources, you could only do that five times in a turn? Basically, yeah. Mm. Ah. You would use a lot of coal transporting a lot of units. Could determine your range or something. You could only move one city if you had one coal, two cities if you had two coal. Because it's not like we're exactly showered with uh, resources sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that makes stuff like that not necessarily transfer as easily to Civ Six. Because A, they remove the strategic supply, so you don't have stockpiles of resources anymore. You know, You either have it or you don't. Yeah, in this case, it's kind of, since it's counting how many of a resource you have anyway for those, that would be your limitation. You might want to get more coal so you could move further on your railroads. No, that would be a good way to do it, too. That'd be a good compromise. Yeah. I was just thinking about the micromanagement comment, and for all the hassle this sounds like, it still sounds like less hassle than manually moving the 20 units the entire <laughs> yeah, distance. Exactly. 20 units for 20 turns to yeah. get to the other side of your empire. Because yeah. they bump into each other and ruin their pathing, so you have to reorder right. all the time. So this would actually still save micro, although, man, I do not agree at all that they've tried to reduce micromanagement in any capacity in practice <laughs> in either of the two new civs. Certainly, like your worker micro doesn't have to be as tight in Civ 6 as it did in Civ 4. But when it comes to the number of inputs per turn, no way. Civ 6 is the worst entry in the series Go until at least like Civ 2, 3 era. Especially when it comes to moving around units. Railroads, yeah, they should be in the game at some point, yes. Maybe there'd even be room for, I don't know, going back to having the actual cargo units like in Civ 4 like I don't know if you remember in Civ 4 you had like the boats that you had to load units into I don't know maybe we get a train unit. Uh, oh no maybe that's the, the train you have a train unit and you just move units near it and then you can put them all in the train and then the train moves oh. I don't miss transports <laughs> You know what, though? Transports were also less micro than either right. Civ 5 or 6. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Because of the stacking, they were less micro. Even in Civ 4, when you had stacking, transports were less micro. And the reason for that was because you could burst move 30 to 50 units at once. If you introduce that to Civ 5 or 6, though, you do run into the problem of having a unique capability to stack units. Well, And so you would need to restrict that a lot. Kind of. It's not completely unprecedented because you do have like the aircraft carriers and, you know, in Civ 5 had like the missile cruisers, but specific type of unit that wasn't on the map. That's not otherwise stackable. Yeah. The problem is, what do you do with five stacked infantry on a hex? Right. You have to set some kind of powerful limitation on their utility because otherwise the ability to make five or six units, especially with decent movement, appear somewhere and overrun somebody would be extremely difficult (laughs) to work with. I would say that moving them into the transport and moving them out of the transport would probably have to cost them their movement for the turn. I guess. But even so, you could take something like five infantry on one side of your empire. As long as you loaded them in a, tra- in a train the previous turn, you could then throw them to the other side of your empire. And just have five infantry appear somewhere, like just appear in front of the city. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of interesting design considerations to, to think about with stuff like that. I think any of those sorts of things is probably something that's doable and that could work. I think they, Firaxis would just have to be really, really careful about how it gets implemented because either it's going to be a pain in the butt to work with because it's going to require a bunch of extra clicks and management and stuff like that, 
even beyond just moving the dang units by themselves, or it's going to be something that's going to be like ridiculously overpowered. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm especially concerned about the second if you're allowing stacking for units that otherwise are not typically able to stack. Right. The potential for unexpected interactions. The cores and armies are one other sort of precedent in Civ Six for stacking units, but again, it's a different philosophy. Yeah, you still get one unit ultimately. Right. And so that's more like just building a stronger version of the same unit ultimately is how that works. Right. So a different thing. And that's the same thing when people propose transports for naval. Aside from that, you would have some micro hassle to it because you have one unit per tile piling into one tile, which is an obvious bottleneck when it comes to really moving anything in a one unit per tile model. But that also has the same problem. Like, what do you do then with when units are unloading from a transport? Can the transport move, unload a unit, move, unload a unit, move, unload a unit so that, like, one turn later you have a surrounded pound? Like, or can they all move off the transport at once? Like, no matter what you do, it, <laughs> it has the potential to be breaking unless you make them move off the transports painstakingly one at a time, at which point, you <laughs> Like, no one's going to want to use that. Yeah, I hope that maybe there'd be, like, an unload button that just automatically unloads the units onto the nearest available coastal tiles in the case of a naval transport. You're still unloading, like, a stack of units onto one from one place to multiple places. Yeah. Which is an otherwise impossible action that has a lot of potential strength. It's very dangerous for a gameplay. You have other issues as well, like, you know, what do you do if there's not enough space to unload all the units? Things like that. What if the tiles are already occupied? Yep. So, yeah, I mean, I could not blame Fraxis at all if that's just too difficult a problem to code, because it's a difficult problem even to think about, let alone to actually implement. Yeah. I'm not expecting something like that to happen. I'm just saying that if being able to lump units into a transport spares us the micro of having to move them across the map one turn at a time, like I would, in principle, be in favor of it. But yeah, it'd be really difficult to make work correctly and feel balanced. I mean, I guess you could have something like a vectoring system where you just put them in something like a city and then you wait a few turns and they are essentially, quote unquote, reproduced elsewhere. That could be a coding issue. It'd be great to kill a transport, though, that was holding, you know, five or six units. Oh, that was always fantastic (laughs) in Civ 4, unless it was this BS Bermuda Triangle event. But yeah, Navy (laughs) was a big deal in Civ 4 for sure to wipe a Navy. Isn't embarking units a lot more risky in Civ 6 now because of the way that zone of control works, where you can actually move through zone of control if you use it to attack a unit? So if you have a really large clump of embarked units, if you don't have a naval unit on every single one of those tiles, like an enemy destroyer or whatever, can't it just slalom through (laughs) your units and hit any one of the embarked units in the group? I would have liked if they kept it that way, but my, I forget which patch it was, but they buffed uh, the strength of embarked transports. So it depends on the era of the person who has the units embarked now. So as long as they're not backwards, you're going to have a hard time one-shotting units in the water because they're going to use an embarkation strength based on their attack. Gotcha. You still don't want to get your units caught at sea, and uh, naval units can throw zone of control on your melee units and water, and they can't attack back. So if you don't have enough Navy to to force the enemy Navy off, that can go bad quickly. You can lose a large percentage of your army without being able to return fire. But yeah, you're not going to get completely mopped just for having a couple naval units short. That's at least better.
Well, Grey Wolf started a topic, uh, Barbarians are People Too, and he adds some interesting ideas, a whole new dimension to barbarians. As one person said, whether they won't be mindless attack bots, which is a, a fair statement. So he's suggesting that barbarians have an aspect of diplomacy. Somebody else brings up idea about villages become settlements that are either hostile or friendly. Somewhat in the past, I remember a previous version that had that some are neutral, some you can pay to join you attacking another civilization or pay you not to attack them and trade with them. The only fear I have about any diplomacy with barbarians is we already have enough useless diplomacy spam as this is now messages that you just click on to get rid of. I hope if they were to implement something with barbarians, it would be intelligent as opposed to the non-intelligent diplomacy we have today. Yeah, please don't have 10 little diplomacy pop-up screens interrupting my turn <laughs> processing with 10 different barbarian tribes. Yeah, exactly. That's my fear. Telling me 10 different times that my economy is crap, even though I'm generating yeah. 50 per turn. <laughs> if there were something closer to the way city-states work now, you know, I've always been surprised if they take a settler and they could get to keep it for X number of turns, why haven't they turned that into a city? Maybe because they're ideologically opposed to founding a city. Well, like the Vedicarians, they've risen against civilization itself. One of the things that I proposed on this very thread was the idea that barbarians should maybe, instead of being a single faction, be treated almost like nomadic equivalents of city-states. Yeah. Where they wander around the map, they settle in a place for a while, you know, build units, collect resources, whatever, and then they move. And maybe they ask permission to enter your territory if they're on good terms with you. And if they're on bad terms, then they don't ask for permission. They just come in, raid it, and then go out. And in general, I'm in favor of almost any proposal that humanizes any of the agents in the game. So I am definitely in favor of the idea of barbarians being treated not like a force of nature and being treated like actual human beings in the game. And I would really think it would be cool if they had distinct little tribes that all have their own names and stuff like that. And, you know, that would also be another way, just like city-states, to represent more of the uh, cultures in human history that don't get to be, for whatever reason, a full-fledged civilization. Now have an opportunity to be represented in some form in the game. And I think that would be cool. Great Wolf uh, does have some pretty uh, interesting suggestions among his list here. Yeah. Yeah, some good ideas. <laughs> the idea of buying invasions on people and stuff is really oh. troll. I like it. Well, you can't do that with diplomacy in Civ Six now. You know, you either have to do the joint war. You can't bribe other civs into um, yeah. declaring war on other civs anymore. So that would actually be a, I would say, a really cool way of adding that element back into the game, where it's okay, it's not civilizations, but hey, we can sick the barbarians on you. I just wonder how much the DDA AIs would pour gold into getting you raided all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's an interesting idea for sure. Yeah, I think you could almost tie in uh, with the city-state mechanic that we've had for two games now. So you could have city-states that start off hostile and attack you. I mean, that's essentially what three cities are now. They're just city-states that want to kill you, basically. They're effectively barbarian city-states. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're yeah. barbarian cities. They share the barbarian colors, I think, in everything. Yeah, so I think this could be a good way to implement some of Grey Wolf's suggestions, is if city-states in general had these mechanics where you could hire them as mercenaries or pay them to explore the map for you, and some city-states will start off hostile and be replacement barbarians. That'd be nice. It also solves some of the like the first 10 turn barb issues rather than what we have now. But it would got a lot of depth beyond that, too. I just wondered 
I mean, in our games that we play on Turncast, a lot of us turn off barbarians, which I don't necessarily agree with. But is that the general thing that people are doing out in the real world? Are they turning off barbarians now? It's a mix. It's a mix, it's a mix. from what I've read. I think more people play with them on than off, but a decent amount play with them off. And one of the top complaints is the one I talk about all the time. Like you can get scouted before you can possibly intercept a scout when the design is that you are penalized for not intercepting a scout. The barbarians definitely should not start with a scout. They should start with a warrior and they should have to build the scout just like everyone else. And the other problem too is the scout starts with three movements. So until you can get some kind of mounted unit, you can't even chase it down. Yeah, you can't cast that scout. Well, you can if you have some time. Like if you build like three, four warriors even a slinger, and you position them in in the path toward warp camps, you can pretty consistently knock out scouts. The problem is, like, when you get scouted on turn four, that's not yeah. just hard. It's it's straight up impossible. There's nothing you can do. It's awful in MP, too. Yeah. Well, competitive MP, anyway. Co-op MP, I mean, you can start with anything, and it's fine. Well, but. even then, in co-op <laughs> MP, you have that happen early on, and you're behind everybody else for the rest of the game, and you can't, like, go after your AI or something. You're sitting there feeling completely useless. Yeah, you are behind. I, I disagree that you can't still go after your AI, but... <laughs> uh, well, you know. <laughs> I mean, after that Tundra could, start... People might be waiting. I don't know. I guess I could just say that if you're going to actually humanize the barbarians and turn them into some kind of factions like that, that could maybe leave room for bringing back wildlife from Civ 4 as being the mindless attack bots at the very beginning of the game. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. Would you like oh, to get oh, more oh, settlers oh. eaten by a lion? Yeah. Hey, you should be escorting your settlers anyway. If it gets eaten by a lion, that's on you. <laughs> we actually have hit points now. That's a big difference from what these things were in Civ 4. Right. Where a lion would overrun your warriors and then kill your entire settling population. (laughs) One of the big things, too, if you lose barbarians as the mindless attack bots and you actually have diplomacy with them, then you do lose that opportunity for early game experience for your units. So I I still think there would be room for having something in the game that, you know, is going to be really aggressive right at the start that you can use to farm at least a little bit of experience up front so you can get at least a few promotions for some of your starting units without necessarily having to make some kind of faction hostile towards you. So if they're going to go with something like this proposal, then I wouldn't mind seeing wild animals come back just for that purpose. Your warrior was killed by an army of bears. (laughs) (laughs) If the bears are organizing the army, I think we have bigger problems. That's true. A core of bears. Yeah, if you actually <laughs> had an of army of bears, like if you had a thousand bears attacking <laughs> together, that, yeah, I mean, for most of history, that'd be pretty difficult to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could have a new honey resource that lets you bribe the bear army to attack <laughs> your neighbors. <laughs> the bear cavalry, indeed. Why not bring in some of the units from beyond Earth and have them as uh, wild animals? (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine the butt hurt? (laughs) They should definitely do something like that for April Fools. Throw in like beyond Earth aliens for a day. Bring back the Alpha Centauri mindworms for April Fools. Ooh, I I wouldn't want to see them go again though. Mindworms are great. So 
So an article was posted a couple of weeks ago on the website business2community.com by someone called Eric Rosenberg. And it seems Eric's been playing quite a lot of Civ because he says that civilization is a great way to learn business lessons and economic concepts that are applicable to modern businesses. So this article is called Five Business Lessons to Learn from Civilization. And uh, he says that those lessons are, one, that growth requires balance. Two, that competitors may behave irrationally. I don't think that sounds like Civ 6 AI to me. Uh, <laughs> no, it sounds like Civ 6 multiplayer. <laughs> yeah, which uh, still doesn't sound like Civ 6, to be honest. Uh, but maybe with <laughs> Rise and Fall's new alliances, that's becoming slightly more true. Number three is that alliances can pay off. Four is specialization leads to victory. And the fifth one is that even a close ally can declare war. Presumably it's a joint war. I don't know about that. But yeah, he says that business lessons live in unexpected places, which is presumably what he told his boss when he was caught playing Civ at work. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like somebody wanted to play Civ on the uh, corporate dime. Well, people do worse on the corporate dime, but yeah, probably not the best thing. If I could pull it off, I would. Yeah. (laughs) Competitors favor rationally. Oh, it's true in the game. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, people do in real life at least attempt to operate on whatever their utility function is. But yeah, maybe not everyone's the best at actually doing that. But Civ 6 is pretty egregiously not. Like, Civ 6 defines roles and then just doesn't try. All your competitors for that are AI mostly don't try to win, which is awkward. Well, didn't we find out last time that that's because uh, everything's spelled wrong? Could be. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> Although that was a design choice going back to Civ 4, at least, that I've never agreed with. Make your mechanics in a way where the AI can act to win. <laughs> because what happens is, yeah, you're going to have a farce of diplomacy if you have diplomacy in a game where your incentives are against diplomacy. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? As I've said before, unless there's some kind of way to cooperatively win the game, I don't think diplomacy will ever work the way that it is intended to work. Because there's always the perverse incentive of sooner or later, I have to stab you in the back (laughs) in order for me to win. So unless we can actually win together, that's going to happen inevitably. So none of the relationships that we build are ever going to actually mean anything in the long term unless we can win the game together. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. And then we actually would have each other's best interests at heart, because if we are trying to win the game together, and we need each other to win the game together, and one of us is hurt in some way, that hurts both of us. Yeah, it's why I'm glad that diplomatic victory isn't in Civ Six, because, I mean, there's no way that the AI will just literally game throw by voting for you, <laughs> which is not something a human player would ever do. Yeah. It's... Yeah, that was always a joke in Civ 4. And in Civ 5, it was more of a money victory. Right. Yeah, is, sure. I mean, okay, at least it's something, right? You're dominating in some resource in order to win. It's still kind of iffy, but it was better in, than in Civ 4. <laughs> but I still don't know. Like, uh, mm. It's tough. It's tough to have a Diplo victory. Does anyone else think that it's a little odd that two of his points are growth requires balance and specialization leads to victory? Don't those sound kind of uh, opposites of each other? Yeah, and so does a close ally could declare war and alliances can pay off. They're kind of mutually exclusive. <laughs> well, I guess both of those do say can, which means sure. that they're hypothetically not possible, not necessarily that they will, but the other two 
are growth requires balance and specialization leads to victory, yeah. which does not have any may or can or maybe modifiers to it. It's just like, oh, you need to be balanced, but you also need to specialize. Otherwise, you won't win. So apparently you have the choice between growing and winning. <laughs> I, mean, I, I know uh, what you're going for here because like, you do need to balance growth. And in the context of that, you can have some people focusing on one thing and other people focusing on another. I mean, that's a relatively basic concept in economics. I don't know that Civ teaches it particularly well compared to other sources, but yeah, it's there. It's there. I get it. That was just something that I saw when I just skimmed through the article. Yeah, they do at a first glance. They they are apparently contradictory statements. Yes, I remember reading somewhere somebody said that uh, geographic wise and history wise that civilization was actually teaching students, children about the world. Which I think this guy's stretching it, putting it from a business acronym. But I think there are things to be learned from civilization as a whole, the game itself. Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, civilization was a huge stepping stone for me to learning about a lot of in history. Recorded for episode 285 with Dan Q, Makalua, Mad Jin, New Earth Relic, and TJ Denzer. I bought all of these units in an airfield, and I was getting ready to bomb, and I didn't see the AI land, and it just so happened that it was an airfield that I took over from an AI, and the airfield was on the coast. They moved a melee unit onto the airfield, and my six jet bombers, gone. Instantly. Squish. Now, yes, I should have realized, oh my gosh, I could see that unit moving on the map. But it was kind of those one time I was like, wow, you just landed a unit, and by moving your melee unit onto the airfield, all of my bombers were gone instantly. I didn't even have to take a separate action to do anything with them. They went away. It was some melee unit from a couple of eras before on top of it, and I realized this is gameplay and not realism. That's a player fault error. I agree. All you had to do to protect it was put a single unit on top of that airfield. Jets don't do very well in defending themselves when they're sitting on the ground at all. Anybody can walk up at that point and destroy all the jets. It actually doesn't take modern technology to do that. No, I recognize that, but I'm saying that they did it absolutely instantly. They didn't pillage the dang airfield. They were just, boof, gone. Because if there was that, okay, you've landed, now, okay, it's there, you need to do something this turn, Dan, or you're going to lose all the bombers... No, it was just it instantly landed and it was gone. And I, I guess it absolutely was use your error, don't get me wrong. But it was also give me a chance to do something. And one turn isn't very much. Your chance to do something was before they got there. You could have protected them. You didn't. But I'm saying that they should have to then take an action, not just going onto the hex. There should be one more chance to get rid of that unit before it now takes that movement on the next turn and then goes ahead and pillages or whatever the equivalent is and it destroys the bomber. I'm just saying it shouldn't be instant move and destroy at the same time. It should be. It actually really, really should be because you had more than enough time to do something. It's kind of like saying, oh, well, when they take my city, uh, it should take an extra action to take the city out so i have a chance to take it back no 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 Abs- no that's not this no you're no, going that, you're no. going a step beyond on that one i can't agree with that ever we're just going to agree to disagree on that clearly i could go through the steps for queuing up stuff in a city in civ 4 or actually 10 cities at once if you wanted because that used to be a thing and uh that, that's just not around anymore 
it takes that many more steps in Civ 5 and especially 6 because you actually have a lot of cities in Civ 6. I remember when I booted up Civ 5 for the first time and I saw that I had to click on a button to open up the build queue and then had to click on the <laughs> I- on little arrows next to the items in order to move them one at a time on the build queue. I was like, yeah. what the heck ever happened to drag and drop? Like that's a ubiquitous <laughs> computer what happened to shift and control click those were in zip four yeah, you could yeah. just click on a city you had the list already available on the bottom if you want to do it quickly it is control click on something and move it to the top of the queue or shift click and leave it at the bottom of the queue it was like a two or three input thing yeah that turned into more than double that for for what purpose i was just completely dumbfounded how did you not just implement a simple drag and drop every application uses that and then having to have an extra click to open and close the queue i was just like what what is this why? like why can't we just have the Civ 4 build queue where I just drag things from the list of buildable items into my queue wherever I want them to be? Nope, no queue for you at all now, lol. Right, and then Civ 6 was like, problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> problem solved, no queue for you. Yeah. We're emphatically back in the 90s, get wrecked. Uh. <laughs> oh, the number of times every game where I'm like, can't I queue some things? Except there were games in the 90s that let you queue things properly. I know Civ, did. Yeah, Civ I know. 2 wasn't very good with it, but there were strategy games that knew how to do this even back then. It's not a new concept, and it's not disappeared. Other titles have done it in every era since then for gaming. It's just Civ forgot somehow. I want to know what in development that they got more time to do because they didn't put queues. Well, I've said it before, and I, I have to imagine that the reason there's no build queue in Civ 6 is because they ran into some complication involving the way that districts have to be done. But the modders managed it. Well, I know, but it's one of those things where they probably scoped it as being, oh, it's just a copy-paste of code from Civ 5 or whatever. It'll be super easy. And then they tried doing that, and it didn't work. And it was one of those things where the added complexity shifted it down the priority queue, and a bunch of other things moved ahead of it, and they just never got around to doing it. I hope it's still in their priority queue somewhere. You're just making me picture that uh, Delbert cartoon where the guy's like, put it in the to-do bin, and he's pointing to the garbage can. <laughs> given how long it's been since released yeah if, if a build queue shows up in the next expansion it gets an a plus from me <laughs> assuming it works well i don't know if they somehow manage to make it even worse than civ 5's build queue then uh then that won't be the case uh it shouldn't be that hard it shouldn't be yeah you'd you'd think not and it's not like the information is more readily available like it's not like the current layout lets you see more at once or something so I don't know. I, I don't know what the rationale was for altering the display so that you need more inputs to see the relevant information and more inputs to use it for anything. Anybody have any fun games recently? <laughs> I have never had a fun game of Civilization. <laughs> oh, no, never. No, just, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> At least it's educational. Eh? <laughs> there you go. In uh, Civ 6, I did have that game recently where I started in the Tundra. It, no, it wasn't just that I started in the Tundra. Only Tundra in view for all directions. I'm on the coast. I've got whales and silver and deer, and that's it. That's all the resources that are visible. <laughs> Now, I, I had some misplays in this game. I got, actually got a settler stolen briefly by an AI, and it delayed my settlement for five turns. So this was a pretty bad opening. But I think the other players only eliminated the AI like two turns before I eliminated Rome. So, yeah, I just archer rushed Rome out of this. So, yeah. you're able to do that. That is a terrible start. 
yeah, I don't think you can get worse than this, pretty much. No. Unless you just start surrounded by mountains or something, so you can't get out. This is about as bad as it gets. Unless it was on an island. Well, even then, though, I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess that would delay a rush a bit. Well, having to trireme and quadreme rush is a heck of a lot harder and oh, yeah. more annoying than having to archer rush. That's true. That's true. Archers are pretty good, and you can get slingers to upgrade, and that's ultimately what I did. I, I made some slingers and upgraded them, and then I just kept picking off Roman units until I had well-promoted units of my own and just trashed them. Oh yeah, when I first started playing Civ Six, I thought the slingers were crap, and I never wanted to build them, but then eventually I got into the habit of at least building three of them and then cheaply upgrading them to archers and getting that tech boost towards uh, mm-hmm. crossbows. That's... I'm playing a True Earth map right now, which I've been playing for weeks and weeks right into the modern era, atomic era, um, I'm going for nu- nuclear war. But I, I had a lot of fun with that game, actually. It's uh, it, it just the and the fact that I'm winning, which helps matters. But uh, I don't know. Does anybody ever play True Earth? I have a few times. I think we've done it once in MP as well. But it's I, <laughs> I don't want to do it all the time, but I do enjoy it on occasion. Yeah, I'm playing as, uh, um, as Scotland, believe it or not. And uh, so far taken over most of the world. Recorded for episode 295 with Dan Q, Makalua, the me and team, Matt Jin, and Mega Bears fan. Probably my most memorable Civ experience ever, actually going all the way back to Civ 4 colonization, a multiplayer game. So, you know, I don't play very much multiplayer, and when I do, it's usually with a small group of friends. I should definitely get into more of the turncast stuff. But we were playing Civilization Colonization, and um, that was one of the games where the uh, privateers had hidden nationality. Uh, which was a feature that I always loved about privateers <laughs> in Civ 4 and Colonization. And we were playing a three-player game with me and two of my friends, and uh, one of them built this massive privateer fleet and was picking off all the rest of our trade galleons going back and forth to Europe. But then every time one of us would complain about you know a privateer sinking one of our ships on the chat, the guy with the privateers would hop onto the chat and be like, oh yeah, me too, and stuff like that, and like play along. And uh, there was one moment, I think, in the game where I actually had visibility of one of his ships getting attacked by a legit barbarian privateer. And so I totally bought into his excuse that he was getting attacked too, <laughs> and that it was just the barbarians, for whatever reason, were out of control in this game. So he just was owning both of the rest of us, with his secret privateer fleet that both of us honestly thought were just pesky barbarians until eventually we just started spamming frigates and just went out and cleared the entire ocean of every last privateer that was in the game and then basically made like a soft treaty with one another that we wouldn't build privateers anymore. And then eventually, just before the end of the game, he announced, yeah, those privateers, those were me. Oh. And we were like, oh my goodness. You see, there's one pertinent detail in there that I thought was going to be slightly different, which was each of you thought that these were barbarians until you realized the attacks were occurring during the human turn. And then <laughs> we said, wait a minute, the AI can't be taking their turn right now. How come I'm watching this combat unfold right now? I don't know. It's, it's, it's lag, man. It's lag. It's brutal. Or you get, like if it's like Sif 4 and you get great generals or something, there's always that too. Like, huh, this person generated a great general. I wonder... I wonder who's using the privateers specifically. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't remember the specific details because, of course, this was colonization. It was years and years and years ago. But he must have been doing it like right at the end of the turn or right at the start, maybe, of a new turn so that we didn't know that it wasn't happening during the AI turn because you just get the little notification eventually. Oh, no, that it, w- it wasn't as obvious unless you were really, really not- right. Unless you were like watching closely, but you would have had to. Su- yeah. but you would have had to suspect that to be watching that closely. Then, if it was that timed, okay, I could see that. Yeah. 
just circumstances made it so that neither of us picked up onto the fact that they were his privateers until basically the end of the game when we finally called him on it and he was like yeah they were mine fantastic that was i think probably the most memorable experience that i've had with the civilization computer game so far although i have had a lot of other memorable experiences with the board game which is pretty good Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candace Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44-121-288-7659. That's 44-121-288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. I dislike the fact that if you're attacking another civilization, nine times out of ten have to raise the city because there's no way to counteract the loyalty. Yeah, but we have too many cities right now where you go in and it's going to flip before you could even get a governor to it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, apparently we should have to surround them with forts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the governors apply the loyalty bonus immediately when you order them sent in contrast to the other benefits they confer. Having the policy for loyalty helps. Having your own cities be pressuring that city helps. And also, if you have enough units, you can just overrun multiple cities simultaneously, which has a big impact on the loyalty pressure. So if you're getting a city flipped that quickly, it's like under 20 pressure. So there's nothing you can do. Yeah, and there's the policy for garrisoned units providing yeah. loyalty as well. Which uh... Yeah, so you can get plus 10 out of that. Uh, so unless you're eating the 20, you're usually okay. You don't want to be Dark Age either, of course. No, that's true. I've definitely found that since the previous Polycast recording, I've been using Magnus a lot more, because I had undervalued the strength of the chopping and harvesting, because I didn't harvest very much in general, but I'm definitely harvesting a lot more now. You build something that takes 50 hammers, Yep. and you select that. Do the other 50 hammers that were saved, they can be put to something else? or They're applied to your next build. If you did a 100 hammer chop, you'd chop for 200 if you got 100% boost. And then you would have 150 overflow. Yeah, let's say you've got the early policy that gives you 50% towards melee and you're building a warrior. You take that warrior to one hammer short of production and chop, and you will get 50% bonus on that chop. Almost all of those hammers are going into something else that does not normally receive the benefit from that 50% policy. That's why it's so strong. Yeah, it's not exactly an advertised mechanic. You've been listening to episode 305. Hope you've enjoyed. Our hosts have been the Mean Team. Always a pleasure. Always. Macalea. <laughs> nice. Oh, Steve. Macalea. What? Whatever. Mackie. Macalea. There you go. Macalea. Keep you well traditioned. <laughs> Mega Bear fan. Oh, crap! I keep forgetting. I need to come up with a clever outro too. Dot dot dot. Uber frog. Sympathetics are people too. <laughs>
and myself warning you too. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, it's up to you to do the segue. Come on. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> I mean, we, we can we do well this. in the no pants dance, but. <laughs> there you go. That'll be the April Fool's joke for Dan. Dan, we recorded two episodes of us talking about not wearing pants. Well, that went uh, kind of far off topic. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you want my uh, ATM pin while we're here, too? 1999, get some. <laughs> Well, I don't think you've ever seen me and Phil in the same place at the same time, have you? <sighs> Phil's just using a pitch changer. <laughs> yeah, good discussion. Good for an episode runtime, too. So, Who needs Dan? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it. I'm not, because we're sending him these files, and he's editing it, and he's great. So I'm not saying it. <laughs> Dan must spend hours editing stuff. I think it's less now that we don't have five different streams. Uh, yeah, like individual to, stuff. Oh gosh, the way it originally was. Oh my god. But yeah, it's still non-trivial for sure, but not nearly as bad as before. Next time Dan misses an episode, Phil, what we're gonna have to do is find other Civ fans who are also football fans, so we can spend half the uh, episode ranting about Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Record date April seventh, two thousand eighteen. Civilization 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.